grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah. We are coming upon a probably the greatest, one of the greatest doctrines that truly shows us the, the depth of the love of God. And the magnitude of the price that was paid for each and every one of us. This divine exchange is what is called the substitutionary atonement. And substitutionary atonement is the central mechanism of our faith. It's the central mechanism of the idea of the salvation that we have and, and the idea that our sin, our wickedness, our guilt has been transferred to someone or something else. And that person's death, that person's suffering will atone for all of our sins, for all the wrong things that we have done. Now, there are some people today that have, I, I was listening to a few podcasts this week, and, and, and out of the blue, they, they happen to mention that they don't believe in substitutionary atonement. And I had to chuckle. Uh, how can you not believe in it? It is in Scripture. So we'll, we'll hit on some of the places in Scripture. We're going to actually go back into the Levitical system and explain to you where it comes from, where this idea arises. And obviously, we're going to see in Isaiah 53 today that that is exactly what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah, has, Isaiah 53 is this very vivid, very vivid picture of what atonement, the atonement that was paid for our sins. The atonement, the, the suffering that you and I should have suffered. And, and some of you think, well, I'm not a bad person, and, and I'm good, and, and obviously Jesus himself said, no one is good but the Father. No one. None of us are good enough. So we should have suffered, but that was transferred to Jesus Christ. But how was that possible? How was it possible that my sins that I had not even committed yet, okay, had been transferred to a man back in the first century, about 30 AD? How were my sins that I hadn't yet committed transferred onto him? How was it possible for our guilt, our, our go, and for us to get his righteousness? We have to go back to, as I said, Leviticus, to the sacrificial system, to Leviticus 16. And we can see this substitutionary atonement being played out. So Leviticus 16, verse 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay up both of his hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. This was a process, a, 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 a ritual that was done on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. It was the most significant and solemn day in, in, in the Jewish calendar, the Israel, Israeli calendar. At that, on that day, the high priest would actually enter the Holy of Holies, which only happened on that day. When you read in the New Testament 
about um, Zechariah going into the temple when he gets the vision that his child is going to be born to, to Elizabeth and his name is going to be John. That was on the Day of Atonement. Once a year they go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And what they do is they bring in two goats. One goat was chosen as the sin offering, symbolically carrying the sins of the people, while another goat, the scapegoat, would bear the sins away into the wilderness. So the priest would come, he'd lay his hands on the scapegoat, and that scapegoat was led out of the city, out to the wilderness, out to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, out to the place where there is evil. In fact, they, they say that it would go out to a demon called Azazel. They named him. And that's where, because the, they, they would look at things like, in the desert it was unknown. It's where the wild animals were. It's not like today, you know, where, where people go out to the desert to camp, like in California. People like to go out in the desert and spend some time out in the desert. They avoided the desert. That's where all the bad things happened. That's where if you were traveling, I mean, believe me, they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. They're, at least their, their ancestors did. They didn't want to go back. So he would place his, that on the, and the and it would a symbol of the sins being taken out of the camp, out of the life of Israel, and sent out into the wilderness to Azazel. This demonstrated that. And it also demonstrated this idea that sins needed to be removed. It's like I said in my prayer. There's this idea today in some churches where it, they believe that you can you can be saved, you can believe in Jesus Christ, but you don't have to change your life. You want to wonder why they allow, why they're able to have homosexual, openly homosexual pastors, openly homosexual people in the church? That's how. They said, well, you don't have to change your life. God, Jesus loves you just as you are. Yes, he does. But if you encounter Christ and it doesn't change your life, it wasn't an encounter with Christ the way it should have been. It should change your life. We also can see in Leviticus 1, 1 through 9 that burnt offerings were voluntary sacrifices offered by individuals as a way of they express their devotion and they seek an atonement for unintentional sins. See, today we have a tendency just to think of sin as sin. But in reality, there are unintentional sins and there are intentional sins. Now, how can you unintentionally sin? Well, you didn't mean to do something. It just happened. You said something you weren't supposed to. You shouldn't have said. It slipped out of your mouth. You, there's actually, in the whole sacrificial system, there's, there's a way. You can actually accidentally kill someone. That's what the what the cities of refuge were for. If you killed somebody accidentally, you could run to that city and they could not, his family could not come after you, her family couldn't come after you, and, and, and they, you were safe until the high priest died, and then you were free to go. But you had to stay in that city. If you came outside that city, they could kill you. Think of it as prison. But you, the, the sin offering that was placed on the altar by the people was only for unintentional sins. They'd bring a male animal, perfect animal, no blemish. They'd lay their hands on the head and then they would slaughter it. They'd kill it. 
And then the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the altar, representing the shedding of the blood for the forgiveness of sins. The burnt offering demonstrated that the worshiper had surrendered and recognized that they needed reconciliation with God. Then we have in Leviticus 4, 1-35, this was the sin offerings. The first one was the burnt offerings. This is now the sin offering. was required for specific unintentional sins that were committed by an individual, by the whole community, or even by the priesthood. And there's a whole list of them that are unintentional. You did, you did things you, did, you didn't mean to do, it. you just did it. It happened. It's, it's not a pattern. And, and which sin you committed, it was certain animals that had, sometimes it was a dove, sometimes it was a ram, sometimes it was a bull. I mean, a bull would have been, you did some really bad things, unintentionally. I don't know how you can do unintentionally bad things, but you can. And the sin offering, what, it, what that sin offering was, what it was, whether it was a dove or a ram or a lamb or a goat, what it was was determined by the seriousness of the sin. I want you to keep that in mind. It was also because of the need for repentance and the need for substitutionary sacrifice to appease God's judgment. It wasn't necessarily to appease God. It was to appease His judgment. Then we have the Passover. The Passover rituals in Exodus 12, 1-4, we see the Passover lamb playing a very significant part in the Israelite deliverance from slavery in Egypt. What would happen is each household would pick a spotless lamb and they would bring that lamb into their house and they would actually treat it like a member of the family. It would eat at their table. Unfortunately, we uh, just about a couple months ago, we decided our oldest cat, we, would, we gave him some meat from the table. Guess where he sits now every single time we have dinner? And goes from chair to chair. But they would bring the lamb in, and they would, it would be part of the family. They'd name it. They would love on it. It would become part of them. And then what they would do is they would, on the day of Passover, they would kill it, take its blood and smear it on the door frame and the lintel, the top part, the lintel and the door frame. And this blood acted as a sign of protection from God's judgment. In Egypt, obviously, it was from the angel of death that was coming through the angel of the Lord that came through. The Passover lamb is the foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, whose blood brings deliverance and salvation from the bondage of sin. Remember what, I'll probably say this later, what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, when he pointed at Christ. Now I want you to understand something. That's, remember I said that the, the burnt offering was for unintentional sins. The sin offering was for unintentional sins. Well, if those two are for unintentional sins, how did they deal with intentional sins? There was no atoning for it. If you intentionally, repeatedly sinned, you could not be atoned for it. In fact, they would say you have to be kicked out of the camp. You had to be cut off and separated from the people. There was no 
If you are a, a perpetual sinner doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're lost. You're done. Under the sacrificial system, there was no hope. And while there were very distinctive differences in the consequences of unintentional and intentional sin in the Old Testament, the Bible makes it very clear that we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And though we have all sinned, except for Christ, he's the only one who didn't sin, we are able to gain forgiveness and redemption from all sin, whether it was intentional or unintentional through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The blood of the animals in Leviticus could not, cannot, would not, would never cover every sin. They were a foreshadowing of the one to come, Jesus Christ, who covers all sin, who takes away the sins of the world. Paul tells the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Understand that in the sacrificial system, you had to take it, you had to intentionally go grab a lamb or grab a sacrifice and take it. That's something you would do to be, be redeemed of unintentional sins. That's you working. And now we have Christ. We don't have to. Nothing we do saves us. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. And our salvation is available whether we intentionally or unintentionally sin. Now understand, if, if we say we're believers in Christ, we should strive to not intentionally sin. I said, the Holy Spirit comes in our life, it changes us. Should, we should be different. But salvation is available no matter how bad or how much we think we've sinned, salvation is available. Regardless of the type or the level, the amount of sin we have committed, His atonement is sufficient to forgive us and to give us eternal life. So let's go to, back to Isaiah, back to what we talked about, the, the fact this this image of substitutionary atonement. And you can hear it. The words just drip with it. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Right there. He has borne our griefs. He took them on. That's the substitutionary part of it. We see again that Jesus, he's being associated with our sorrows. His, his sorrows are not his. They're ours. They belong to us. They belong to all of humanity. He never sinned. If you and I had been there, we watched him being beaten and then carrying the cross on his back and the, the, to the, the hill at Golgotha and, and seeing the nails driven into his, probably here more than here because this would have torn, but probably here in his hand and in his feet. I don't think we truly would have understood what was going on. We wouldn't, oh yeah, well, that's the substitutionary atonement. No, I don't think we would have gotten it. See, hindsight's always 20-20. We can always see perfectly after we've experienced it. 
But see, those, those who experienced Jesus on the cross, they never fully understood it until the Holy Spirit came. He didn't, they didn't understand that he, what he was bearing, the, the, the pain and the agony and the sorrow that he was bearing was not his, but was theirs. Even the ones who were nailing the nails into his hands and feet, even those who condemned him to the cross. On the Old Testament system of sacrifice, there are certain characteristics that must be met in order to be sacrificed as an animal. If, if, if an animal, it had to be a certain age, it had to be perfect, no blemish whatsoever. It must be the best. Many times it was required to be the firstborn of the flock. So let's look to see if Jesus measured up. If he was our sacrifice, because believe me, you and I, we are all blemished. We are not able to be sacrificed. First of all, Jesus was the eternal Son of God who was sitting on the throne in perfect relationship with his Father in a place of perfection. This environment that was there before creation. He, he left that place and he entered a world of misery here on earth. And he did it willingly. Willingly he did that. And with the full knowledge of what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen. And while he was, he was on this earth, which was an ocean of misery and grief, filled with sick, lame, blind, you know, demon-possessed people, he knew that people that he healed were far worse off than just their physical ailments. He knew they needed something more than just to be able to see. They needed something more than just to be to have all the leprosy gone. They needed something more than just being able to speak. Because no amount of animal sacrifice could ever remove the amount of true defilement and pollution that fills the human heart and soul. You could, you could sacrifice... Football fields full of animals. It wouldn't atone for your sins. It would not atone for human pollution that's in us. And even with all this crushing sin, Jesus still plunged into this world, fully understanding what was going to happen, knowing that he was going to have to bear our griefs and our sorrows. And all this would happen on a Roman cross. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's why I can't understand why anybody could say there's no such thing as substitutionary atonement. It's right there. This verse more than any in the Bible explains the cross. I, I challenge you, memorize Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, was brought, that has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The perfect description, a clear description of the death of Jesus Christ. Pierced, crushed, chastised, or punished, and wounded. Memorize that. Jesus is the suffering servant. No other person, no other entity in history could fulfill this description. 
And remember last week I said that the people had underestimated Jesus. They thought he was just some rabbi. He was much more. The suffering servant is a stumbling stone. They were expecting a triumphant, you know, king riding, warrior king riding in on a horse. He rode in on a donkey. They thought he was going to conquer the world. He he was going to be a Messiah hero. and, And Jesus will be so much more than they could ever possibly imagine. I think, I think, I was thinking about this this week. I think we underestimate the wrath of God. You know, we've all gotten in trouble with our parents, do something we're not supposed to do, and we feel their wrath. 20 push ups, right? <laughs> we know they're angry at us, but, it, 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 you know, we know they still love us. I don't think we fully understand the wrath of God. God's wrath is so great that we can't be in His presence. We can't. And it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a righteous anger. We fear, fail to fathom that the righteous anger that God has towards us if it weren't for Jesus Christ. The cross took care of all of that. He no longer is wrathful towards us. He's no longer angry with us. And it's a righteous anger. It's, it's, it's not, he's not sinning. He's no longer angry at us. Because Jesus took the price. Jesus paid the price for us. We underestimate our sinfulness. Oh, I'm not so bad. Right? I'm a good person. But none of us are good. See, as much as the Israelites, and I believe they really thought this, as much as we today think that we need this warrior Messiah to come into, into our world and open a can of you-know-what on everybody, all those that are making our lives difficult. I don't know about you, but I sit sometimes and I look at what's going on in this world and I'm thinking, oh, please come back. <laughs> please make it today. How long are we going to last? How is it possible that we're going to last any longer? We're going to destroy ourselves or each other so much suffering, so much grief. But see, the truth is we needed a suffering servant first to take away the problem, the underlying issue that causes all the grief, all the pain, all the sorrow that we have and we see in this world. And even more so because you and I are like sheep. Isaiah says in verse 6, And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We wander off into wickedness. I mean, hasn't that always characterized God's sheep? I mean, we don't really know the time frame, like from when Adam and Eve were created, and God gave them all the things they were supposed to do. And then one day, they're in the garden, and Eve gets tempted by the serpent. Adam listens to his wife. Adam should have been protecting his wife, protecting the garden, keeping the serpent out of the garden. He didn't. He failed. That's why it's his fault, too. It's not just Eve's fault for being gullible. How long was it? We don't know. But I can tell you now, from that point forward, we are prone to wander into wickedness. 
song we sang earlier. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you feel it? Do you feel that? Do you feel that pull from the world to pull you into wickedness? Do you feel that pull from the world to, you know, unless you live in a bubble, if you live and you interact with the world at all, you know that even the littlest things are able to pull us. The littlest thoughts are able to pull us away. We're all like sheep wandering off into the wilderness. I can and I want to be cured of my wandering ways, my wandering eye, my wandering mind, my wandering life. I don't, I, I don't want to leave the straight and narrow. That's not what I want to do. But what I, Paul says what I want to do, I don't do. And what I shouldn't do, I do. But see, we have laid out before us the way of Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. I don't want anything except for what Jesus would do. I don't want to think about anything else but except what he would think. I only want to love what he loves. But what happens? I wonder. We struggle with sin. We follow our own way. We, we want to define what's good in life. We do as humans. No, it's intentional sin. It's not unintentional. We want to be kings and queens of our own lives. Instead, we should be saying, Oh Lord, what is your will for me? You are my king. As I said, our wandering is not unintentional. We do it. We don't, we don't accidentally wander away from God. We're not just walking on in life and it's like, oh, oh, wait a minute, where did God go? I guess I wandered away. No, we are intentionally walking away from him. Sometimes it's a little, maybe it's just a little bit. But see, what happens is God took all the effects of the wandering, everything that causes us, all these things that tempt us, He laid all those sins, all of our sins on Jesus Christ. He paid the price already. All we have to do is try not to wander and walk with Christ. Jesus was killed for our wanderings. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now remember I said, Jesus willingly went to be sacrificed. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53, says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus willingly went to the cross. When a lamb is going to be sacrificed or, or sheared, you know, they have no clue what's happening. You know, when, when we have to cut our cat's toenails, you know, you, you kind of sneak up on them. You know, and you, oh, nice kitty, nice kitty, gotcha, and you, then you cut their toenails. They had no clue when they woke up that morning. You know, I think, I think that human's going to try to cut my toenails. They, they don't think about those things. A lamb, when it's going to be slaughtered for sacrifice or be sheared, they have their sheep gets sheared. Lamb doesn't. They have no clue that that's what's going to happen. But see, that wasn't the way it was with Christ. He knew 
what was going to happen. His heart was heavy in the Garden of Gethsemane because what was going to happen. But in the, even with that, he was silent. With, with, with all the injustice, the human, the human, oh, the, the, just, just the terrible human things that were done to Christ, he didn't once defend himself. I don't know about you, but I think I would have protested. I would have protested a little bit. When they, when, they, when they struck him, they covered him, they struck him, and they said, who, who, who hit you? I would have told them. That would have freaked him out. But that's not what he did. That's not what he did. In fact, when he's hanging on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He never once defended himself. The only time he really spoke was when Pontius Pilate says, are you, the, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say I am. He never admitted that. He never defended himself. He could have. He had every right to. He was God. He was creator. He, he created all these creatures that were accusing him and beating on him. He could have stopped them with just a thought. But he didn't. He willingly endured it all. He stood before the high priest, was accused of many things, many lies. How many of us can stand and just somebody have somebody lie about us and not say, no, wait a minute, that's a lie? He did it. He's asked if he's going to answer the charges and testimonies that these men are bringing against him because they're false, by the way, but... He doesn't. He doesn't refute them. He doesn't defend himself at all. He remained silent. Why did Jesus not respond? Well, what was he? He was the substitute for us. So in a sense, he was playing the guilty party. He was going to take upon our sins. He was guilty. So he remained silent. He did not defend himself because he was guilty. Because it wasn't his guilt, though. It was ours. He was taking. He was acting like a guilty person. Isaiah goes on to predict the death of Jesus Christ. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken, for the transgressions of my people. We see here a prediction that the Messiah will be killed because the people, they determined that he was cut off from the land of the living. That's a, that's a pretty way of saying he was killed. He was, he was dead. Okay, Stricken for the transgressions of my people. He wasn't usually, you know, he, he wasn't merely pained for our sins. It, it's not like he, you know, normally what happens is you're, you're tried and then you go for a hearing for your conviction, for your, for your sentencing. You're convicted in your sentence. Usually you go to jail for a period of time. If you murder somebody, you go to jail for a while. And then you do all the appeals and appeals. And finally you run out of appeals. And in some states, you are ultimately, you are killed. That's what happens. Or other states, you're in prison for the rest of your life until you die. But not Jesus. Jesus pays the ultimate price. 
They were in a rush to kill Jesus, to crush this carpenter rabbi who had stirred up trouble amongst the people. His generation, the people of his time, they did not stop and contemplate his death. They said, oh well, troublemaker's gone. We're done. We're finished. We took care of it. They didn't ponder it appropriately. But see, you and I, we get to rectify this. We get to rectify this this for eternity. We get to ponder the death of Christ for eternity. So we have Isaiah predicting that Jesus was going to be cut off in the land of the living. And then we have this mysterious burial, burial in 53.9. It says, And they gave his grave, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, the people considered Jesus wicked. I mean, come on, he was killed on a cross. No, uh, uh, you know, a wicked man dies on a tree. That's what Scripture says. The Old Testament says so. He must have been. He must have been evil. But being counted wicked and going to the grave with the wicked are two different things. Jesus did die with other people. We know that he was he was the one in the middle. There were two thieves, quote thieves, actually they weren't thieves. They were actually probably rebels They because normally they didn't crucify just for thievery. If you stole something, they cut your hand off. So you couldn't steal again. And you had to have only one hand. Normally, people who were crucified were people who had rebelled against Rome. So Jesus died with other criminals. And normally what they would do is when they take the criminals' bodies down, they didn't get an individual grave. No, they were they dug a hole, and all everybody who was crucified that day was thrown into a hole. It was a mass grave. It wasn't an individual grave. But instead, with Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went and asked for Jesus' body. And he was buried in a new tomb, like a king, treated and buried as a king. And then Isaiah returns to this sinlessness of the Messiah, which we have to hold that up. It's so important. In verse 9, he says, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All the abuse that Jesus endured on that last day of his human life seems so disconnected from who he really was because it wasn't his punishment. It was yours and it was mine. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For our sake he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless, took our sins upon him. In return, we are made righteous through our faith in him. So what do we do? What do we do with this idea of substitutionary atonement? Well, think about the fact that the, a holy God would offer us such salvation is amazing. Our sorrows were nailed to the cross, and we undeservingly receive righteousness. You and I do not des- deserve the righteousness that we receive. We need to think about that. We need to cherish that. 
If you're a follower of Christ, you, you are completely and totally forgiven of all your past, present, and all your future sins. But it's all based upon the death of Jesus. We need to rejoice in this. Be happy. And even if you are happy, you need to be even more happy. Because Paul tells the church of Philippi in Philippians 4.4, 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It wasn't just, hey, I reminded you to rejoice. Make sure you rejoice. No, when he repeats it again, it means be overflowing with joy. We should be walking around happy. We should be walking around excited, even with all the things going on in this world. We should be full of joy unspeakable. Why? Because our sins are forgiven for eternity. I'm afraid that most of us walk around, yeah, well, I had a bad day today. How are you? Oh, well, I hurt. Yeah. Just be glad you're alive because if you didn't hurt anymore, you'd be dead. You know? <laughs> we should be joyful. We should be exceedingly joyful. People should look at us and say, man, what is wrong with them? Well, <laughs> they look at us and say, man, what is wrong with them? You know, there's a different reason. We need to be full of joy. If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, you've got to see Him in your mind's eye. See Him suffering and dying on the cross for you. He was treated as someone who was wicked. Why? So you wouldn't have to be. If you're lost, come while there's still time. There's going to come a time where it's going to be too late. All the world's going to realize that it's too late. And by then, it's way too late. Don't be part of that crowd. Come now. Now's the time. Repent. Trust in Christ. Crucified and resurrected. Memorize verse uh, Isaiah 53, 5. The whole he was crushed, pierced, all these things. Scripture is food for our faith, so feed on this. We need to constantly repent of our propensity to wander. <laughs> when we wander, we need to repent. Oh, I, mm, I should have done that. I, I've wandered away. Lord, forgive me. And if we've wronged someone, we need to go and ask for forgiveness. Well, I don't want to ask for forgiveness. Too bad. You need to. Well, what if they don't forgive me? That's not your, that's not your problem. You still need to ask for forgiveness. Because that's, that's something they're going to have to deal with God. But on the other way, what if somebody doesn't come and ask me for forgiveness? You still need to forgive them. Well, what if they don't want to be forgiven? That's too bad. That's not on you. It's on them. You need to forgive. Own your wandering and repent of it. Say, Lord, I'm prone to wander. I don't want to. I do it, but I don't want to. What a wretched man or woman that I am. Help me not to wander. And I challenge you to share these verses with someone this week. Share Isaiah 53, 5. Take these verses to someone and explain to them and see what happens. Let's pray.